Hey everyone, welcome to Reformed Podmatics, hosted by the pastors of Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church in Ripon, California. It's Pastor Mark Van Dyke and Pastor Zach Dewey, and this podcast exists to promote the vibrant, biblical, and historically informed face of Reformed theology, both in our context and beyond. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Pastor Zach. And I'm Pastor Mark. And today we're going to be turning our attention to what is a pretty broad conversation happening right now in the midst of the church, at least here in the United States and really all around the world. And that is the conversation surrounding the fallen leaders that we've been seeing or hearing of. Really, this is not a new phenomenon. This has been going on ever since the beginning of the church. Uh, There have been times where leaders have made huge, grave errors, whether that is in their their teaching and their false teaching in particular. Um, We see this all with the great heretics of the early church, for example, but also with moral failings, failings where they have have fallen very, very hard and very deeply into problems of huge mistakes, whether that's Drugs, gambling, sex, whatever, whatever it is, abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we've we've heard about this quite a bit. In fact, Pastor Mark and I, uh, together with a few other pastors from our local area, just read a book called Jesus and John Wayne. And the very last chapter of the book, there's sort of a, a whole long history of evangelical mistakes over the past 75 or 100 years or so mm-hmm. of different prominent pastors or leaders who have fallen into into sin and have hurt people very deeply in the process. And so this episode will be sort of looking into this whole issue. What do we do with fallen leaders? How do we prevent it from happening? How, how does it happen? Um, and how do we respond? And how do we shepherd people uh, who have been hurt by, by fallen leaders? And so, yeah, Mark, what, what are your general thoughts? Just to start out as we're beginning what are your general thoughts about fallen leaders and and how we ought to respond if and when it does happen? Well, a few episodes ago we talked about having an ethos of repentance and I want to say that hopefully we have an ethos that is biblical and Christ-like in this conversation. I think that hmm. uh, many people in the world love very much when evangelical leaders fail. And so Hmm. maybe even some people within the church who would look across the denominational aisle and see a moral failing would take a little bit of delight in that. Hmm. Um, Oh, I knew it was all just a a smoke and mirrors over there and and somebody's moral failing has destroyed the church. That's how a lot of people acted when Mark Driscoll Mm -hmm. um, had his big falling out. Like there was a lot of joy yeah, there's a lot of I told you so. It definitely. And so I hope that we don't have that attitude. Hmm, um, that's a really good point. Time, while at the same time, t- taking very seriously this phenomenon, it really is a consistent thing that happens among um, hmm. not just evangelicals. This happens in the African church, the Latin church, the Asian church, um, the European church, that hmm. that. It's not an isolated thing to American evangelicalism, um, but certainly it is 
uh, the work of the devil to pull down influential people and cause a lot of collateral damage when those sort of things are happening. And so hmm. um, the reason that I wanted to tackle this topic in the podcast is that evangelicals seem pretty uh, tempted to uh, be drawn towards such leaders. There's <laughs> a real appeal of the charismatic, worldly um, person who, for some reason, I, I don't know if I have a, a good compass for this, I don't want to be prideful, but I, I could listen to certain people and just say, this is this person is not really into the gospel, but is very, very into his or herself. <laughs> and And part of this purpose of this episode is to maybe give people a little bit more uh, tools in order to spot that. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really good point. It has a lot to do with with church polity. Then, and yeah. I think that's one of the main directions we want to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's interesting to me to see where prominent pastors fail or prominent leaders fail. They're often ministering in in contexts where they are put very much on a pedestal, yeah. and they are looked up to as if what they say is is gold and it's almost unquestionable. Mm-hmm. And so in in these places people have a lot of trust and certainty in their leaders because their leaders are the most biblical, the most thorough, the most uh you know willing to say what nobody else is willing to say and so mm-hmm. they are often hyped up. And w- what th- what this means is that when the the crash comes and it's not always inevitable, but w- it, when it does, if it does, this then leads to much more harm being inflicted on the congregation or on those who so looked up to the leader. Yeah. Uh, and so one of the problems here that this suggests then I think is how much respect and and gravity and how much hype we have for our for our leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, this isn't to say we should have zero respect for our leaders obviously that's that's not biblical either the bible tells us to have to respect our authority to obey our authorities to submit to our authorities Um, but where this goes too far it can be all the more damaging for the life of of a christian and for the life of a church as well yeah and it's across denominational lines. Um, yeah. I think that is a really good way of describing the issue overall, is to say there's too much, um, there's too much hope put into a person. Mm-hmm. And so in the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. you have, of course, abuses of authority there, where yeah. um, 20 or 30 years ago, when we were kids, uh, one would have perceived a priest as a truly holy man. Mm-hmm. And e- even if I were a kid and I, if I saw a man wearing vestments in the collar, mm-hmm. I would assume that is a very holy person. Mm-hmm. And um, just the, the physical appearance uh, communicates that. Yeah. And there's a lot of theological um, stuff happening in the Catholic Church that perpetuates that as well, of mm-hmm. the purity of the priest Mm-hmm. And that, of course, was abused um, so badly that uh, the distrust of the church has certainly spilled over into Protestantism, I would say, as well. 
um, that this is mm-hmm. a Christian problem. It's not just like a Catholic problem. Yeah, I think um, maybe five or ten years ago, it would have been easy for evangelicals to sort yeah. of kick it off as a Catholic problem, yeah. right? And just yeah. say, oh, well, that's not happening here. Sure. That that cannot happen anymore. And that was foolish even to think then. Mm-hmm. It was blind, uh, I think. But, yeah, sorry. But then across, I mean, you would think, uh, what is the opposite in terms of polity from Catholicism? It would be the charismatic church. And so you're going to have the same issue in the charismatic church where the pastor is the figurehead and mm-hmm. people are going to put their their hope, their rest all their hopes and dreams in, in this pastor and the word mm-hmm. that he or she will share um, as a prophet. Yeah, Even, or as, a, as an apostle. That's what apostle. they call themselves, apostles now. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I was just listening this morning to apostle so-and-so and... Yeah. My goodness, when you set yourself up as an apostle... Uh, and you stumble even a little bit. Yeah, well, wh- that shows something about what you think about yourself, mm-hmm. really, in the end. And um, it's very similar to the, the priestly holy person in, in the Catholic tradition. And this happens also in our own tradition, where there's a, a real elevation in our tradition of intellectual abil- abilities. Mm-hmm. And so somebody who would be a great writer, someone who is an eloquent orator as a preacher, um, will be elevated yeah. uh, in a lot of ways culturally in a town, in a city. And um, it's my point being uh, Roman Catholic, Charismatic, Reformed, Baptist, Methodist, it, mm-hmm. it's going to cross all denominational boundaries basically as being an issue that you're going to see in a lot of places. Yeah, and we live in a culture... Of celebrity, yeah, don't we? Where anywhere, where anyone is gifted in any particular way, they they will generally, unless they work very difficult against it, they will generally be become well known. Social media will allow their mm. pr- their their uh, platform to increase. I mean, even this podcast, you could accuse us of you know our <laughs> platform increasing self promotion, maybe <laughs> right. Um, I hope it's that's not the case at all. Yeah. Um, as far as I know, we still have only a few listeners, so thank <laughs> thank you to those of you who do listen. Yeah. Um, but but it's true that sometimes people will rise to the top and become so prominent uh, that they are looked to as having almost an authority that is that is way beyond what they should have, and I'm, even above the Bible. Yeah, exactly, yeah. and. This happens a lot in churches where, particularly, and I think you've, you've said already, this happens in all sorts of churches. Mm-hmm. No denomination or polity is the cure-all. But, but that isn't to say that there are not better approaches mm-hmm. to polity. Absolutely. And so this, this, it will be more uh, susceptible. The church that has a more charismatic polity will often be more susceptible to it. Mm-hmm. Um, or in, just in places where the figurehead or the pastor is seen as being the solo the the lone ranger uh the one who is unquestioned in his in his authority uh and so this is i guess just one simple argument of making the case for a collegial approach Hmm. to to church authority not finding it in just one person Uh, there is a church uh, sort of quasi-denomination that follows what they call the Moses model of ministry, where the pastor essentially is like Moses. And 
in my view, it's almost like they become like a pope unto themselves mm. w- within a local congregation. And what they say goes. Their decisions are the decisions that will be made. Now, these churches generally have other pastors, other leaders, lay leaders, uh, but there's nothing that really can put a check on mm-hmm. Moses, <laughs> on the pastor who is sort of at the center of it all. Does everyone know how much Moses makes? Yeah. I, that would be my question. I don't know. I, w- I do not know. <laughs> I would be curious Maybe. how many people would know Moses' salary. Yeah. And so <laughs> that's a that's a factor there I think is the, <laughs> not just that of course but other things as well. Yeah, keeping um, keeping sort him of, in check. Yeah, and keep, having everybody have, you know, sort of an awareness of of his status and position in in the church. Um yeah, some people would see having the more collegial approach as being too bogged down. There's going to be too much maybe they would say politicking. Things will happen maybe too slowly. Yeah. Um, and so it's better to have a more sort of just executive position person who gets to make the decisions. Uh, but this can really lead to deeply problematic things in a church. Again, there's no cure all. There's no, you know, sort of vaccination for, for pastor failure. Uh, but you can mitigate the effects, I think very much when the polity is, is shifted towards a more collegial polity where there is more of a connection between pastors, between churches, and even a a denomination. Uh, That's one of the reasons I chose coming out of seminary to insert myself into a denomination uh, because I think that the congregational model doesn't quite live up to the New Testament ideals. Yeah, and well, that gets us right into the first point that we want to make about the history of the pastoral role, and of course that's a long history. Um, hmm. Old Testament, New Testament, there are cases of um, leadership gone awry. Uh, the first one that yeah. comes, comes to mind for the Old Testament would be Nadab and Abihu, um, hmm. Aaron's sons who offer strange fire to the Lord and are consumed by fire. Um, they're, they're killed immediately when they do this. Um, and so into the new Testament, you have examples where, um, obviously Judas Iscariot is a part of the disciples and he betrays Hmm. Jesus. And so that would be an obvious example, but others would be Ananias and Sapphira who were influential members of, um, the early church and lied about a money issue, um, Mm -hmm. and were struck dead on the spot. And obviously like, Zach has said that has continued um, through the church, but I think yeah. that it would be helpful to pick up the the history of the pastoral role at the Reformation because such a radical shift occurred there in terms of what people expect from a pastor. And if you know your Reformation history, you would know that what preceded um, the Reformation in Europe was obviously Roman Catholicism, and there the central moment of the week, the central moment of the worship was the Mass, was the mm-hmm. the Eucharist. And so in that, um, you have a lot of authority, of course, in the priest's hands, quite literally. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and that could be abused because the priest is regarded as the holy man who can administer the sacrament. Mm-hmm. And so that was abused, of course. Um, but... <clears throat> 
after uh, the response to that, the Reformation, was a shift towards the preaching being the center. And um, that's going to be full of temptations and possible pitfalls as well. And, oh, and yeah. so um, obvi- there, there's a lot of good reasons for the shift happening, but um, for our purposes today, we're focusing a little bit more on what people would expect from a pastor. And um, if the central event is the preaching, then one could maybe assume that if a man is a good preacher, then that man also must be a holy, pure, admirable person in his character. And, mm-hmm. and that has all kinds of issues attached to it, I think. And, of course, it's true that a pastor should be, right? Yeah. Those are sort of yeah. the qualifications that are laid down in Scripture uh, and that have always been taught in the church and particularly in the Reformational churches. There's been a high emphasis on the moral life of a pastor. Uh, but this can lead to, in its own ways, to being seen as the authoritative figurehead, whereas mm-hmm. in the Roman Catholic Church, the priests would have been given a lot of authority, really with the keys, the argument of the keys, binding and loosing. If the mm-hmm. priests considered you outside of, of the community of the church, you were, and if they didn't, then you were in. And so there could be a lot of the priests making decisions uh, on who is in, who is out. Mm-hmm. Perhaps. On what one needed to do to get in or stay in, like indulgences, for example. Right. And yeah. so if you were a communing member, that would have been good. But if the priest and the church excommunicated you, that you would have been in a pretty dire situation. So that gave the priest a very real sort of authority, mm-hmm. whereas with the pastor, for the Protestants, that wasn't so much the case. It was because of his position as a as a teacher of the word, and this is reflected in the dress of the reformers, right? They were no longer wearing priestly vestments, but they were wearing the robes of the academies of the universities to symbolize that they were students of the word, simply trying to teach it uh, to, to their congregations. They would have been then put on a pedestal of being an authoritative interpreter of the word that, that could have been hmm. the vulnerability there uh, and whatever they say goes. And we see this really down through the history of, of the Protestant tradition mm-hmm especially as Protestantism, you could say, evolves, shifts, uh, changes, uh, and now very much so modern Protestantism, modern evangelicalism is a far cry from what the reformers would have envisioned back in the 16th century. And now we have preachers that are sort of rogue preachers. Mm -hmm. And we, we even have the phenomenon today where if you are a Christian and you read your Bible and you're and even if you don't ever go to church you just read your Bible and you know Jesus and you pray and you decide one day that you want to start a church you can and your church will trust in your authority simply as just a guy who studied the Bible more than the rest of us sure and so this can create a very much a sort of guru mentality this is the guy this is the one that has the enlightened mind the enlightened perspective and he is seeing things that nobody else has seen before. Uh, he's he's the one. And this often is how a lot of cults develop, but it's how, also how a lot of you know local churches mm. pop up. Yeah. It's just a certain person, man or woman, deciding that they want to start a church. And generally when this happens, they are not really under 
the authority of anyone in any real way. They may have people who help them make decisions. They may have advisors and so on, but they do not ultimately sit under the authority of a group of others. Yeah, and um, that's related also to one of the first takeaways that I would hope people would have from the conversation is um, that charisma is so uh, attractive, persuasive in our culture, especially with media, um, Mm -hmm. that I, I would say one way someone can tell if not not if their pastor is going to like fall into some sort of moral catastrophe but is pulling maybe a little bit away from the scripture away from the glory of god is to ask the question what do i love about my pastor is it that he mm-hmm. tells these stories that are so moving to me and help me know him um in my last town where I lived, there was a pastor known as the crying pastor and hmm. he would cry in almost every single sermon. <laughs> and I listened to some of his sermons and he would always be crying about how beautiful something he did was for his wife or um, how <laughs> like he, he used, he was always a hero in his sermons and was always so amazed hmm. at how awesome he kind of was. Hmm. And, and so um, there's another pastor that I know of who um, uses huge energy to preach. And I, I went to this church um, so it's it loud. a few years ago. He's more local. He's very loud. He's very energetic. Um, not in Ripon here, but at, at a non-denominational church not too far away. Hmm. And very, very energetic. Mm-hmm. And I left there thinking, well, I don't really know what he said. I, I feel really excited mm-hmm. because <laughs> he was so excited up there. And I, I just noticed his volume kept getting higher and higher. And he mm-hmm. wasn't actually saying a whole lot that was interesting, mm-hmm. but it was almost sort of uh, compensating for a lack of uh, substance with energy and with charisma. Mm-hmm. And so um, what I would hope people would sort of look for and maybe even encourage their pastors is show us the word. Um, Kevin DeYoung had a great mm-hmm. little line once where he said, Pastor, you should be at your best when you're in the text, not when you're uh, just sort of riffing or mm-hmm. um, getting excited about some some sort of other thing. It's like be at your best when you're pointing people to the Lord, not hmm. when you're pointing people to yourself. Hmm. And um, I, I think that if more Christians were sort of had their, their antenna up to that sort of phenomenon which is very charismatic mm-hmm. um we would probably see a lot less uh abuse of power and things of that nature um less manipulation and and again i'm not accusing these pastors that i listen to necessarily of moral failures but to me that's the kind of thing that leads into a uh, an arena where moral failure abuse mm-hmm. of power uh could very likely happen yeah yeah we, i don't ever want to say that yeah. A vulnerable situation always entails an abuse of power. I don't think yeah. we're trying to make that point at all. But it, it, but making oneself more vulnerable is not something that w- that we should do. And I think what you're getting down to is what I've once heard described as the distinction between personality and character. Mm-hmm. Today we are enamored by personality. We want a pastor, a leader with a big personality that comes through either in their 
you know, they're, they're funny jokes from the pulpit, and it's just an enjoyable sermon, makes you laugh and feel good. Or it's the super energetic. Maybe it's a really serious sermon, but it's mm. so energetic and so loud and vibrant that that's really what more what gets you than even the content. Um, and it isn't to say that you can't be vibrant in the pulpit. Right. God forbid that we ever say anything <laughs> like that. Sure. Uh, I think I think you should be, but it should be very much regulated by what the text is saying. Um, and so. Yeah, we don't want to be the frozen chosen. We don't want to fall prey to that critique of Calvinists. Uh, but we also don't want to elevate the personality of the preacher, of the pastor, to a height that it shouldn't be. We should really be worried about whether or not our pastor exhibits deep character. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they exhibit the the character of Christ, the, the, the character traits, the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, and one that you should be looking for in every pastor is humility and the ability to submit themselves to the elders who, yeah. who rule. Uh, if a pastor is constantly grading against those uh, other leaders in the church, that is probably a sign that something is, is really askew. Uh, and if they, if they get by sort of on the, the sort of fumes of having a big personality that everybody's just drawn to. Mm-hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean that they are moral failures by any means. Right. Uh, but it should make you wonder, where do I see deep character also in this person? Mm-hmm. It's not to say that you can't have a big personality and deep, strong character. Uh, but do not... Do not mix the two up. Mm-hmm. Do not do not think that somebody must be such a great Christian because they're so energetic mm. about, uh, you know, issues of loving their community and doing good things for their community and pumping everybody up for for community service. I mean, that's a good thing, but don't don't let that uh, draw your attention away from how this person is living their life. What what are the practices and the habits of this person? Uh, that you see day in and day out. And if you don't see those practices and habits, because this person is so on a pedestal that nobody really knows them, that's probably (laughs) a problem as well. Hmm. I've known church scenarios where people really don't know the pastor. Uh, The pastor, his whole life is sort of removed from the life of the church. Hmm. Uh, That is a little bit strange to me, and I don't, I don't think that that should be the case. The pastor should not only be involved in the lives of his people, but they should be involved in his life as well. Yeah, there's a book that our elders are working our way through called The Elder and His Work. And at one point, I think it's in this book where he says, um, the elders should smell like the sheep. Hmm. You know, um, the shepherd should smell like the sheep. And the the point, point. of course, is you're with them, you're Mm -hmm. living with them, uh, I, I could give the example of uh, a conversation that Pastor Zach and I were having right before this where we were discussing my sermon from this past Sunday. I preached on divorce. And as I looked out to the congregation, I was telling Zach, I was just struck by it. We have a lot of divorced people in our church, and so that's going to mm-hmm. influence the way that I handle this. Um, I, hopefully it doesn't mean that I like pull punches from God's word, but it does 
mean that I have a connection to these people and I kind of know, generally speaking, what's going on in their lives. Yeah, I think it helped you this last week on your sermon on divorce to not just make it a trivia sermon, like you were saying in the sermon, that that a lot of times this is treated as, well, what does the Bible say about divorce? In sort of an objective, even cold way, um, I think you, you did a good job of navigating the the, I don't know, the personalness mm. of, of that passage in Mark. Well, and hopefully it's reciprocal too, because um, not only do I know the folks in our church, but I hope that they know me. Mm-hmm. And I would also hope that people would get the perception from me as a pastor that someone could disagree with me and we're going to talk about that. Yeah. And we'll wrestle with that a little bit. Maybe I'll learn. And um, in council, for example, the council is our gathering of elders and deacons. And Mm -hmm. these are laymen, um, seven elders, seven deacons. And um, Zach and I are on council as well as pastors. And we make decisions there. And it it occasionally happens that a decision does not go the way that I hope. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a good thing for me um, as I reflect on our COVID our year plus now of COVID um, uh, sort of catastrophe, you might say, culturally. Um, yeah. Uh, I There have been dis- decisions made that I disagree with, but looking back, I think it was really good for me and it was humbling to for me to say, I'm going to work this out with other uh, leaders, with other Christian men. Yeah. Um, and uh, that that is a good thing. And, and relating it to our topic for the day um, when I heard Zach, Ravi Zacharias give his presentations, um, you did not get the sense that this is someone hmm. who people disagree with and he would really listen to that disagreement and hmm. kind of value it to some extent. It was just like, he's he's the Bible answer man. He's the guru. Mm-hmm. Um, he knows and we should just shut up and listen. Hmm. Um, now, of course, it was a great shock to everyone what Ravi Zacharias was up to. Yeah. Um, but even that being said, I, I will occasionally listen to um, a pastor and think, is anyone ever disagreeing with this guy? Like like sitting in a council meeting and saying, no, pastor, that's mm-hmm. that's really not what we need to do here. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thankful that, that there are some friends that I have around me who would say, eh, that's you're, you're off on this one, Mark. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, wow. Um, I value your opinion. And so I, maybe I am uh, just being open to the possibility that we're wrong to me is one of the, the great, um, checks yeah, a, against, sure. against this, uh, fallen leader, um, sort of situation. Yeah, and that sort of leads into that conversation about just does your pastor have humility? Yeah, is he is he willing to be to be told that he is wrong? Um, now it doesn't mean he always has to agree that he's wrong, uh, but there should be an open environment that a pastor creates where if he says something in a sermon, for example, that you deeply disagree with. Mm-hmm. You should not be fearful for for approaching him mm-hmm. maybe later that week in a tactful way. I'm not saying run up to him and start attacking his sermon, but he should be totally willing to hear you out. That should that should even be a joyful thing for him to do uh, to to sort of work that out with with any congregant. 
Um, and so this goes into the whole idea of teachability. Yeah. Sometimes pastors have the the idea that, you know, I went to seminary, I studied these things, <laughs> I know these things. Um, or maybe they didn't go to seminary, but they studied alone in their bedroom for five years before they became a pastor or whatever it was, sort of self-taught and proud of it, mm-hmm. which is fine. Um, but they sort of have this chip on their shoulder, like they have something to prove and like whatever they say is, it cannot be questioned. That, that, that's pretty sick. If you find that, that's not a good thing. Uh, mm-hmm. You, you want to want to avoid that sort of situation. So yeah. What are your thoughts on, on teachability for pastors? Mark. Uh, so John Kelvin, this was a main theme of his when writing on the attitude and sort of the spirit of a pastor the Latin word for teachability would be docilitas, which is where hmm. we get our word docile from. And Interesting. so a docile animal is an animal that is, it isn't going to like terrorize you <laughs> or um, be, uh, you know, just running rampant all over the place. Um, but a, a docile animal would be um, not just teachable, but trainable. Mm-hmm. Um, this animal would be able to learn something and, and do its basic function. Interesting. Um, and so he wrote about docilitas, teachability in a pastor. And um, uh, there's a really good article that I have found that I actually commend to people who want to get into this with more depth. It's called Like Angels Among Them, John Kelvin and the Protestant Pastorate. Who's that by? Um, oh, I don't know who it's by, but okay. uh, it's it plays a lot on the work of David Rylersdam, who was a professor of mine at Kelvin Theological mm-hmm. Seminary. Okay. And so Rylersdam really elevates... Um, Calvin's emphasis on docilitas as something that's required for for the pastor. And Hmm. um, some of this comes from a sermon that Calvin preached on Ephesians 4. And I'll I'll read just a little bit from that, which is in Ephesians 4, Calvin is trying to capture the attitude, the humility, the the spirit of a, a minister. He says, Although Jesus Christ has appointed certain men to be leaders and guides to show other men the way, Yet it does not follow that they are so wise that they must not be learners as well as the rest. For he that speaks must take instruction by it himself, and a man will never be fit to declare God's will to other men unless he himself learns daily. And um, the article itself continues by saying, In summary, in order to remain properly teachable, ministers had to show themselves willing to receive instruction from the Word, from the doctors of the church, meaning uh, theologians of church history, and from colleagues, and from the laity. And so um, being able to sit with people and learn is uh, an awesome balm against this, uh, this penchant towards the untouchable pastor at the top. Um, to use another real-world example, we have somebody like Mark Driscoll, hmm. and um, Driscoll was just drawing crowds of people to himself. There were something like 15 satellites of Mars mm-hmm. Hill that just sprung up everywhere, all over western Washington. And I was a pastor in northwest Washington when hmm. all of his blow-up happened. And um, there, there was a lot of talk about it. Um, there was definitely the sense before his big fall that he is this goose laying these golden eggs, and who would who would go and confront that? You know, let, like let's keep this going. Let's 
uh, let's support him. Let's give him everything that he wants and everything that he asks for, including our church buying thousands of copies of his book so that it ends up on the New York Times bestseller list. Mm-hmm. Because that's that's what we want. It, it's all done. It's very slippery and very um, yeah. um, subtle. But they would have always said, this is done for the sake of the gospel. Yeah, the kingdom you know, of God or whatever. If one life is saved, you know, this mm-hmm. is the, the, the way that, that we should go and do things. Um, and, and give Pastor Mark Driscoll what, what he wants. We need to support him because people are coming to the Lord. And eventually that totally exploded hmm. um, because when one would listen to Mark Driscoll, um, you would get the sense this is not a very teachable docilitas humble person um who would be willing to sit with a friend like matt chandler who did confront him on Uh some of these things and and say wow i do need to change i'm going to back off for a little while no it was just full steam ahead hard charging Uh and it blew up Uh yeah then he if you know the story he he did submit to acts 29 and he left his his pastorate and Mars Hill, all the different satellite campuses either disbanded or became their own congregations. In one weekend. Yeah. Which is pretty pretty wild. Yeah. And then he did appear a couple years later and now he's a he has a pastor again in, in Arizona. In Arizona. Yeah. Um and I don't think he's a part of any any denomination or any group or yeah, anything he's like that. Calvinism yeah. as well, right? Which yeah, it's 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 interesting, and I think that <laughs> I think he did the right thing by stepping down when he did. Sure. Uh, I don't think that becoming a pastor again uh, was probably the best decision. And there, there are plenty of stories of like this, even in the Reformed world. And back to Jesus and John Wayne, she she goes ahead and points them out. Mm-hmm. Uh, James McDonald yeah. is another one. C.J. Mahaney. Uh, we can just list them off. Tolly and Chavidgen. Yeah. was a big one when I was in seminary. I was in Orlando. He went to RTS Orlando, my alma mater, and that happened while I was in seminary, and he was down in southern southern Florida, and then he moved and, and got reinstated in some sort of ministry position at a PCA church in Orlando while I was there. So mm-hmm. it was a big conversation at the time in 2016 or 2017. Yeah. Uh, and so, Jr. I yeah, had his yeah. Fallout as well. So this is not something that only happens even in charismatic circles. Like, yeah. like that could be some way people would listen to this this uh, episode and think, oh, well, we're just really calling out people who aren't reformed. No, it it happens. It happens mm-hmm. close to home, very much as well. So something that I want to want to address is how do we help people who have been hurt mm-hmm. uh, by by such failings, uh, people who have been involved in the ministries of these leaders who are really struggling, and for good reason, after their beloved pastor uh, makes some huge mistakes or some things are uncovered uh, from that pastor's life. How do we as fellow Christians help guide people who have been hurt? Um, this was a big question in the early church, actually. Hmm. And um, there was a heresy called docetism that said that in order for the sacrament to be effective, it must be administered by a pure Hmm. person. Hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And so that that was rejected. Donatism. Donat. I'm sorry, Donatism. I always okay. confuse Docetism and Donatism. But it's e- I could see that. <laughs> it, it's the Donat. <laughs> the Donatists um, were saying that a um, a minister must be morally pure and and even perfect in order to administer a sacrament in a way that would be eff- efficacious to the congregation. Mm-hmm. And this was rejected. I believe Augustine is one of the people mm-hmm. who sort of argued against this. Yeah, he was. Um, and he said, actually, it it has to do with the faith of the recipient, um, in in terms of the the efficaciousness of um, a blessing. Um, so if you had been baptized by some leader who had been proven to be a failure, yeah, did this? basically mean your baptism wasn't valid right that was a big question that was the question and so somebody would hear oh old heresies that doesn't matter anymore oh it very much does in this mm-hmm. conversation um if somebody came to faith through the work of ravi zacharias um should mm-hmm. they now doubt their faith um no uh, the lord um uses people in spite of themselves what joseph says at the end of his life what man intends for evil, God can use for good. Um, and it doesn't give a pass to pastors that our moral uh, rectitude uh, does mm. has no bearing on the blessing that God gives. Um, I think it very much actually does influence the fruitfulness of our ministry. Um, yeah. But at the same time, somebody who's been hurt by a pastor and does not necessarily need to bring all... Christian faith into question um, at some revelation of an indiscretion. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And it's 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 a unique situation for every person that goes through this. So there's not any one-size-fits-all approach to how to sort of counsel somebody yeah. who has been so deeply hurt. Uh, you probably want to affirm their hurts and to just say, yeah, I understand how difficult that must be for you to have trusted this person so much only to have them sort of make a catastrophe of their life and of and of their ministry uh and depending on how much trust this that your friend has placed in this person you'll want to be sensitive to you to how wounded they are hmm. uh, but you you would want to affirm to them that christianity is bigger than than you're just your leader yeah. And this is why it's helpful. Hmm. Maybe maybe this just shows my my bent towards church history, but if one moral failure happens with one leader, that for me doesn't it doesn't necessarily surprise me or shock me. I mean it does in some sense, but I also think hmm. for every every one leader that has failed, there's dozens more who have in in quietness uh in in humility have served their flocks well and will never have their names be known. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that, that helps me see that Christianity is not just what so-and-so says. Uh, and this is one of the, again, a reason for having a denomination is that if one leader in the denomination fails, that's just one leader. And there, there are other Christians who in the denomination who will work to, Resolve the situation as best as possible, and to and to uh, call 
what that person done as call it evil to say it yeah. to say what it is and to there's do something about it. Yeah. And in our denomination in the CRC, there is something that we call Article 17, which uh, is when a pastor basically is divorced from a church. Uh, that could be all for, for all sorts of re- reasons. It can be for fine reasons. It can be for uh, for bad reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be a pastor just seeming or feeling that they no longer feel called to be in the ministry, and so they will. They will stop serving. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there will be Article 17s that happen where the denomination or the classes has gotten involved in the life of another church and has had to force or or yeah. ask the other the pastor in question to step down, step away, to be separated, maybe even to be disqualified from ministry. Yeah. And I, I think you even participated on this. Yeah, I was past. on a committee that went to another congregation because um, there was a neighboring congregation that was really concerned about the behavior of this pastor, and so I was I was on a committee with three other awesome pastors, and um, we in, sort of investigated things, and it did lead to the deposition of a minister, and so he's no longer a pastor in the CRC, mm-hmm. and. Um, that was an interesting situation because uh, I wouldn't call it a preemptive strike, but we definitely we he was sinning in, in in such a way where we saw if we don't step in now and and bring a suspension so forth and so on with with other uh, criteria for reinstatement, yeah. this is gonna be really bad down the road. Um, mm-hmm. I think this was actually right after the Driscoll stuff and. And it wasn't mm-hmm. like some terrible moral failing as much as just a um, a, a lot of manipulation mm-hmm. and uh, telling two different stories to two different groups of people, which is very proven. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we stepped in to try to to stop the catastrophe from happening with bringing some what I believe was loving but firm church discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he, re- he rejected the uh, suspension, and so he was deposed. Um, now that was hard. It was not something that any of us pastors wanted to do. And even still, I think back to that and I learned a lot. I might've done some things differently, but it, it also kind of woke me up to the fact that I have accountability in this classes when Mm -hmm. you participate in these kinds of things, or hopefully when any pastors hear of a Ravi Zacharias, we look at our lives and and that's maybe one of the thing takeaways that we need too is when we hear these things happening in a church, hopefully it wakes us up to the disaster of sin happening from in a leader's life the the massive fallout that that has. There are proverbs about that how the one who is in authority impacts so many people um, as the king goes, so goes the nation in a lot of ways. Uh, that's first and second kings you know, um, to a T, um, this is a king who followed the Lord. And so the, the nation was blessed. This is a king who hated the Lord. And so the nation was cursed in a lot of ways. Um, we see that in scripture as a principle. Um, and so in each of these sad stories, introspection, I think is a good, it's a good response. Yeah, and that's also exactly what James says in James chapter 3, where he warns leaders. He says, not many of you should become teachers, yeah. my brothers, for you know that you, we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Why will we be judged with greater strictness? Well, the answer is obvious, because we 
have influence in people's lives, uh, whether we like it or not. Mm. And if we teach false doctrine, that will influence people away from the gospel. It would be better for you to have a millstone hung on your head and to be thrown into the ocean than to teach false doctrine. Yeah, Yeah. that's what Jesus said. And if we make a catastrophe of our lives, if we make shipwreck of our lives, uh, that will also harm people. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's, there's the warning there. And so that is a great reason for having institutionalized accountability. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the Christian world, we often like to spiritualize the Christian faith so much that we don't even really have a category for something like a classis where other pastors can get involved on a committee mm-hmm. and to do that sort of work. To, to some some Christians, that won't feel like spiritual work, like what you did was really spiritual work. Mm. It will feel like more, more of a formality, more of a sort of humdrum, you yeah, know. A duty. A duty. Yeah. And nobody wants to do that sort of thing, but that's a a very deeply spiritual thing to be involved in, Mm -hmm. uh, in calling other pastors uh, to accountability. Uh, And that is a beautiful thing. And so I guess in some sense, this this episode, as we've been saying a little bit, is is a sort of strange argument for... uh, a plurality of, of elders. Mm-hmm. Uh, we as a CRC or a reformed congregation have a Presbyterian form of church government, which with a lowercase p, uh, meaning that we have an elder-led form of church government. Mm-hmm. In our church, Mark and I are, we're not above the elders. Right, by we're under their authority. At all. We are yeah. under the elders' authority. We have uh, our reviews coming up in a few weeks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> They're loving, yeah. wise, truthful elders. We're thankful yeah. for that. And so in our council meetings, it's the furthest thing from me and Mark getting what we want all yeah. the time. Uh, we don't even really talk that much. No. I feel like. Yeah, yeah no. Um, I mean, I talk less as the youth pastor, but... Yeah, it's it's led. There's a council president, and that's that's who sort of guides the discussion, and that's how it goes. And uh, we vote. I think actually, do you get a vote I, until something is split I, down the middle? I vote on really local, more spiritual matters. So if okay. if things are, um, I don't know, uh, I, I I don't. I very rarely vote. During okay. our meetings, um, if it has to do with like the spiritual care of a person mm. and how, you know, we're going to go about mm-hmm. uh, taking a certain route uh, with with a person, we don't usually even vote on those kinds of things. But if that would be the topic that I mm-hmm. would vote on more so than like, should we so like we got this loan from the government for paying salaries during mm. COVID if we would need it and we voted to send it back. So I didn't vote on that. Mm. Um mm-hmm. Because that's that's a more official sort of vote, and I think in California, actually, I'm not supposed to vote um, oh, okay. on those sorts of official um, organizational matters, you might okay. say. Anyways, um, I, but I think that's all happening behind the scenes, and that's not all that sexy to people. No. But um, that's actually some of the most important stuff that happens in, in that it communicates uh, to every elder and deacon there um, we are in this together. Um, if somebody disagrees with me, what, 
a couple meetings ago, people disagreed with me about, I think it was a COVID related thing. And hmm. we had a, a nice back and forth and, um, I love the guy who was disagreeing and we walked out of there and we were chatting and it mm-hmm. was a, a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, if somebody was joining a church, um, which actually my parents are going through the process of joining a new church right now. And mm-hmm. one of the questions that I think they should have is who's in charge, you know, like, yeah, like a... <laughs> where is the functional authority? Yeah. Um, and I actually, <laughs> given all of the temptations, all the, um, struggles, I, w- I really would caution people against joining a church where the immediate answer is the pastor. It's his church mm-hmm. or her church. Or if um, it's some sort of almost like unknown board of people. Right. Or somebody doesn't even know who is. I think that tells so a lot this too. Is, this probably reveals more about me, but I, 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 in, in my past, I went to a church and I was young, so I wasn't really caring about who was in leadership. But to this day, I still don't know who was in leadership while I was there. Hmm. And I also don't know how you became a part of the church board. I think, I suspect that it was the church board selected their own replacements. And so the authority would remain sort of in-house. Yeah. Um, There's so much nepotism too when that ends up happening. It's amazing how much nepotism there is in these charismatic congregations. You know, the board is the wife and son, you know, and Mm -hmm. so forth. It's like, that's not just an abstract example. That happens Mm -hmm. all over the place. Um, and that's destructive. And so along with who's in charge, I would say, how how long are the terms? Yeah. And who gets to vote on yeah. who's in or yeah. who's, how does that happen? What's how that often process? is there turnover? Because um, there's a lot of ministries where it's frozen chosen in that regard, where you, once you're on, you're on forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's 15 years. And I believe that's the Presbyterian model of elders is that it's lifelong elders i think yeah i could be wrong <laughs> yeah and i think that maybe different presbyterian churches handle that differently but sure. um that's another question and and maybe beyond that as we move towards closing here i would want to say if somebody's been really burned by a pastoral failure don't then go to putting your trust in another pastor like like putting mm-hmm. all your trust in a different Amen. individual person um, you should hopefully go and trust another pastor to some extent. We don't want all your trust. <laughs> right. But um, spread the responsibility out to friends, of course, yeah. most highly to the Lord and to his word um, and to a pastor. And hopefully you can mm-hmm. establish trust in a pastor who is displaying humility, who is accountable to um, a council or mm-hmm. consistory or whatever your church would call it. I don't like the term board because that communicates a business model Mm -hmm. um, more than a a spiritual model. But um, don't then go to the next mega church. I'll say it really frankly like that. Um, Okay, I was burned by this spiritual uh, sort of leader who, wow, everything's blown up over there. And so I'm just going to drift right over to this same structure and put my faith now either in a local person or in mm-hmm. uh, a guy who's on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say, man, there's a lot of good stuff happening in little churches where you know 
what's you can really know in a lot of ways what's happening and mm-hmm. little churches have their abuses and scandals oh, as yeah. well oh yeah um but i i do think that um and there's less distance between mm-hmm. you and the other people and so you can pick up on things a lot earlier i i truly believe that in our church and in other small churches around here ripping grace down the street mm-hmm. um you know emmanuel crc zion even in, in our churches if a pastor was to have a major moral collapse would it hurt oh yeah it would hurt would it push people out of those congregations as if there was no going back to christianity no probably not i don't think it would because i think these are little churches and this is not to pat ourselves on the back we we know that christianity is not just as big as our pastor says it is whatever he teaches is sort of that's christianity and re- mm-hmm. it represents all of it we know that that was just a genuine failing of that pastor. Um, and so we would have elders, you'd have other leaders, deacons able to step in and say, this was wrong. Here's why it was wrong. And here's what we're going to do about it. This isn't to say that sometimes even elders don't fail in, in doing this. Sometimes elders and deacons, councils don't don't do the right thing in the wake of, of a failing. Sometimes they cover it up and that is that is just doubling down on the wickedness and we've seen that as well but i i I do think that having a more collegial approach uh, a sort of uh collegial being like colleagues having having authority uh extended to the group and not just to a single person gives a genuinely helpful buffer from the fallout that can can be created when when the single figurehead pastor, leader, priest, whoever falls. Uh, I, I think that that sets you up for the healthiest route forward. Yeah. And even if there's never a moral failing, it's just a better system because mm-hmm. everyone is understanding we're the body of Christ. And yeah. this minister who um, has a role and uh, it's an important role in the body of Christ um it is no more important than other members of the body. Hmm. Um, so to say that a pastor yeah, has an amen. important role doesn't diminish the importance of the servant, the organizer, uh, the person who plans the potluck. Mm-hmm. Um, all of these things make up the uh, the functioning of the body of Christ. And so yeah. even if there's never a moral failing, it is still a better system. If there is a moral failing, then... Um, people with a body of Christ mentality um, have a way of handling that, mm-hmm. um, and so it's good if it's if if there it's a better system if there is a problem, but it's also a better system if there is really never even a problem either. Hmm. So, um, yeah, I would agree. So hopefully this has been helpful for you. There's a lot more that we could could have yeah. said, I'm sure, uh, especially in dealing with people who have gone through these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. This is a very very deep and a very dark issue and it's something that needs to be addressed uh, and there's no there's no getting away from and so we hope we've just given you a few helpful thoughts to consider and that you will be looking forward to joining us next week and we'll be looking forward to joining you as well all right thanks guys thanks